0: Testing 1, 2, 3. Testing 1, 2, 3. This is Radio Free Mormon. On the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, The Corbridge Maneuver. On January 22nd of 2019, Elder Corbridge of the 70 gave a talk at BYU, Utah, called Will You Stand? And in it, he seeks to address concerns that members of the church are having about issues relating to church history and I'm very happy to have
1: with me on the show once again Bill real this is becoming a, a lot of fun this is a regular thing now for you and me to get together and to talk about these I uh, I just want to say before you kind of maybe share a few more thoughts when we get into this audio is that the the main reason I wanted to tackle this talk with you RFM is that uh, I've had seven eight nine people at this point uh, ask us, to to do that and respond that their loved ones who are still uh, in the church, believers, uh, sent this talk on to them. And I was just sitting with a lady the other day, first time I'm meeting her, and right in the middle of our conversation, her phone uh, dings and she gets a text message. And uh, it is a member of her ward sharing this talk, hoping, hoping to bring her back to the church. And I hope that the the listeners today, if some of you are believers who have shared this talk and this is your loved one's effort to reach back out to you, that you might listen to this from the, from the beginning to the end and, un- and be willing to understand the other side of, of what Elder Corbridge is saying and why uh, this talk specifically caused some hurt and pain uh, with your loved one. The reason I'm calling it
0: The Corbridge Maneuver is a riff on an old Star Trek episode called The Corbamite Maneuver. But it's an apt title for Elder Corbridge's talk because the maneuver that he's seeking to do is to address and resolve issues that members of the church are having with church history without ever once actually dealing with the issues themselves.
1: Yeah, this seems to be a pattern, RFM, lately, where we want to act like there's answers, but we never actually get into the issues because we know the answers are not satisfactory And we're going to raise way more questions by doing so. Right. And this is
0: really, as I've listened to this talk a number of times, and as I've printed it out and read the text of it a number of times and made a lot of notes and given it a lot of thought, this strikes me as the key to understanding this entire message. The key to understanding it is that Elder Corbridge is a leader of the church. The leaders of the church by this time are fully aware that many, many hundreds and even thousands of members of the church, the youngest, the brightest, the members that the future of the church is relying upon to grow up and take leadership roles in the church. Those people are leaving the church in droves, and they're leaving the church over history issues related to the church that they are encountering. Now, one might think that if you're a leader of the church, what you want to do is you want to address the issues that are causing people to leave But instead, what we have is a talk like this that talks about anything and everything other than the issues that are causing people to leave. The key to understanding this talk and every component part of this talk is to try and resolve the issues that people are having related to church history without ever once actually dealing with the issues themselves. So once we understand that's the point of the talk, then you can understand why it is that he says the things He says, and ultimately what he will say is, the issues that are causing people to leave the church are not important. Instead, there's all these other issues. There's four primary issues, four primary questions that he'll get to. Those are the important things. These other issues that are causing people to leave the church, they're only secondary And what we have to do is basically ignore those other issues, those secondary issues, those issues that are causing people to leave the church, and focus over here on these primary questions that are not causing people to leave the church. And he engages in a number of other strategies and tactics in order to avoid talking about the issues themselves. Now, in context, this talk is a series of three talks that have now been given at all of the main BYU campuses. In September of 2018, Henry J. Iring, president of BYU-Idaho, gave a talk just like this. Ostensibly, it was to deal with issues relating to church history without ever talking about them. Then in January of this year, 2019, Elder and Sister Rinland gave a talk at BYU-Hawaii, along these exact same lines. That was the one with the dilapidated dinghy parable. And we covered that one as well. We've covered both of those talks before. But now, for a trifecta, Elder Corbridge, in January again, but later in January of 2019, January 22nd of 2019, gives this talk at BYU, Utah. So it is obvious to me, this is not a coincidence, that this is a formulated plan of having leaders in the church address this issue and the only reason it's being addressed on all these three fronts is because this is becoming a huge problem in the church and the church leaders are recognizing it and they are seeking to go out and put out the fire, do damage control to the best of their ability. Unfortunately, their damage control does not include actually talking about the issues that are causing people to leave. Instead, it has to do with reasons why it's not necessary to deal with those issues in the first
1: place. So that's the first point I wanted to make. Your thoughts, Bill? Yeah, I think that the church realizes people are leaving. They're leaving over issues within church history. But the data inside those issues is so damaging that whatever solution they have to come up with, it has to be something different than pointing people back to studying those issues. That becomes, I think, crystal clear.
0: Yes, and this is why I'm calling it the Corbridge Maneuver. By the way, this this talk by Elder Corbridge is, I think, by far the most successful of the three talks that have been given. He is an excellent speaker. My understanding is that he, like me, is an attorney by profession, and he's a very good speaker. This is actually probably the best talk that I have ever heard given by a leader of the church. It is enthusiastic, it is well-constructed, and he is able to speak in such a way as to bring his audience along with him. I found myself, the first time I listened to it in January, just being swept away by his rhetoric and going along and hearing what he had to say and feeling, wow, I'm really hearing a powerful talk here that is very persuasive. But, you know, back in 1977 when I saw Star Wars for the first time, So we're going from Star Trek to Star Wars. But Star Wars for the first time, I was swept away by that movie the first time I saw it. It just had so much momentum to it. And this talk has momentum to it, like that movie. But the mistake I made was that I went back and I saw Star Wars again a second time. And the second time I went and saw it, I was not being swept away by the action because I knew what was going to happen. And I was able to look at it more carefully. And what I saw the second time was that it was kind of a clunky movie. The acting really was not that great. There were a lot of problems with the movie. And those are things I did not see the first time. And similarly, as I'm going through Elder Corbidge's talk, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, and actually taking time with it and thinking about it and breaking it down, I'm beginning to see that there's a lot of clunkiness to this talk as well. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight, largely because of public demand. Well, the question is, how can you resolve the issues that are leading people out of the church without ever addressing the issues themselves? And as we said, the Corbridge maneuver is to say that those issues are not important. Other issues are more important. You must answer these other issues first. And if you answer them correctly, then the real issues won't matter anyway. So let's go ahead and let's play the tape here. This is about a 24-minute talk and we'll try and keep our comments to a minimum. It's broken down into sections. If you're listening to this podcast, I would encourage you to pull up the talk, and we may have a link to it in the show notes, and actually be able to read the talk along with us. What we're going to do is we're going to play each section of the talk as it is divided up by Elder Corbridge in the written version of his talk, and then we'll make some comments
2: afterward. Let's roll the tape. Thank you, President Worthen. Sister Corbridge and I are... Honored and so grateful to be with you here today. As part of an assignment I had as a general authority, I needed to read through a great deal of material antagonistic to the church, the prophet Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, and the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There may not be anything out there that I haven't read. Since that assignment changed, I have not returned to wallow in that mire Again, reading that material always left me with a feeling of gloom, and one day that sense of darkness inspired me to write a a partial response to all such antagonistic claims. I would like to share with you some of what I recorded that day, and although I wrote it for my own benefit, I hope it may help you as well. I wanted to give a different talk today. I wrote other talks, more entertaining, with more stories, more engaging than this one. But every time I wrote a new one, I came back, and I was directed back to this one.
1: All right, so he mentions here RFM, antagonistic material, and I want to start there. RFM, let me talk to the listener, and I'm hoping that there are people out there who have shared this. Uh, I know that as a member of the church that you're bothered by the antagonistic material that's out there. Elder Corbridge here mentions antagonistic material. I, and that it's bothering you? I realize most members of the church stay away from what they think is anti-Mormon material. But rather, I'm pointing to this idea that the material is there in the first place. Like, there are critics out there, people who have left the church, and they have mean, nasty things to say about this thing that you love. Uh, I'm simply saying the fact that it exists is annoying and bothers us as members of the church when we're believers and we're on the inside. Let me say that for your doubting and unbelieving loved one, the truth claims of the church simply don't hold up. And I don't mean that offensively. I'm saying this from their point of view. They've investigated what Elder Corbridge is about to go into as these secondary issues. And I'm simply saying that your loved one has looked into this. They've researched it. And having researched it, They've come to the conclusion like there's some serious problems in our church history and those problems have something to do uh, with the truth claims of the church, like the truth claims are problematic. And it's more than just one issue. So there are a multitude of historical issues that we run into problems with. Elder Corbidge is going to name some of the major ones. He's also going to leave out some of the major ones. But the other issue, too, is that we've defined words in certain ways. We've defined prophet and seer and revelator. It's not just the historical events. It's how the top 15 of the church act. It's how we are on social issues. And 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 I hope that you, the listener, are beginning to gather that we're creating a new narrative in our church. And I think if you can set some of your defensiveness, some of your emotion aside, you're going to realize that the church is creating a new narrative. If we look at the LDS gospel topic essays on the church's website, those begin coming out in 2013. Those contain a new story. and just recently, the church came out with its saints book. If you go to that saints book and you look at it, you're going to find that the story that's presented there is not the story you were taught 20 years ago. It is much more complex, even though it's written at like a fifth grade reading level. Uh, it's much more complex. It contains the messiness and it grants that things are not as black and white and not as good and bad as the church presented its story to you, again, two decades ago or earlier. Your loved one senses that this church treats those who are different in ways that are anything but Christ-like, to the point that some of these people are even taking their lives. And so often we want to defend the church as being good and wholesome and, and makes our lives better. But the reality is that your loved one's asking you to sit with the possibility that we are also doing great harm and trauma to those who are inside our church, but who do not fit the mold. The other thing I want to touch on is this feeling of gloom, the sense of darkness. Uh, To discover information that is different or counters the beliefs that you've invested your entire life in, that would be gloomy, wouldn't it? Like the moment somebody who has invested their entire life, energy, resources, time, everything into a tribal system, a religious system that they believed with all their heart, and to see that suddenly not be what they thought it was and to wrestle with whether that tribe, that religious system holds up, like it makes sense that they would experience gloom. It makes sense that there would be a, a phase of having darkness, no different than if we lost a loved one close to us and we have to go through those stages of grief. As somebody wrestles with the church, it's the same experience. So I don't, I don't think it's fair for Elder Corbridge to speak of this feeling of gloom and doom the way he does. And I also think there's a reason why there's antagonistic material, and I'm asking you, the listener, to sit with that, at least through the rest of this talk. Right, and I want to make a number of
0: comments myself about this opening introduction by Elder Corbridge. First off, he talks about antagonistic material that he's had to wade through. Well, he can call it antagonistic material if he likes, but I think that you and I both know that the material that he finds troubling and that causes him this feeling of gloom is not antagonistic material. It is material that is produced by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints itself. It was not antagonists of the Church that wrote the 1832 account of the First Vision in which Joseph Smith says he saw only one being. That was Joseph Smith who wrote that. It was an antagonist of the church who hid that account in a safe for three decades and tried to keep the members from finding out about it. No, that was Joseph Fielding Smith. And so it's not this antagonistic material in the sense of, well, these are people who are outside the church and critics of the church who are just making all these crazy outlandish allegations against the church that are causing him gloom. It is the material and the history of the church itself produced by church leaders and created by the leaders of the church that's causing him this gloom. Second thing I wanted to say is that He tips his hand here at the very beginning when he says that he had an assignment a few years back where he had to go through all this antagonistic material, as he calls it. Well, there he tips his hand. I believe that he was a member of the Strengthening Church Members Committee. That is the committee that is charged with monitoring the writings of current members of the church in order to determine whether they are saying things that are negative about the church, negative about church leaders, and if that rises to such a level that then it gets referred up to the two apostles who are the head of the committee, and then whether that material has to be or should be forwarded to the local leaders of that member for church action against that member. Now obviously before you get to that point, Somebody has to actually read the material that's being produced by the church member. Elder Corbridge is not going back and reading the God Makers from the 1980s. He's not going back and reading Mormonism Shadow or Reality from the 1960s. He is reading current writings, probably listening to podcasts as well, Bill. Ahem, ahem, and then synopsizing it and sending what he thinks are the relevant excerpts, i.e. the worst things he can find, to the leadership of the committee in order to make that determination and send that material to the local leaders, which is why we keep hearing from these members of the church like John DeLynn and others that when they get to their church council, their disciplinary court, or when they're meeting with their stake president, their stake president has a file with a bunch of stuff in it which is taken out of context, and the church leader time after time shows that they are unaware of where it is that this stuff is found unaware of the context. All that's happened is they have been given this material in its edited form. And so that's what Elder Corbridge, I believe, is saying that he was involved in. He also says that he's read pretty much everything of this sort that may have been created. And here he's setting himself up as the authority on the subject. He's not gonna talk about the issues, remember, that's the whole goal here is to resolve these issues without ever talking about them. Well, part of that is setting himself up as the guy who's read it all, but he's still faithful, and at the end he's going to bear his testimony that he knows these things are true in spite of all the things he's read. And this is similar to Elder Renlund saying in his version of this talk that he has read all the volumes of the Joseph Smith papers, and that hasn't hurt his testimony. Instead, that has increased his testimony of Joseph Smith. The third thing, or fourth thing, I can't keep track of the things I'm talking about here has to do with the fact that Elder Corbridge was so disturbed by the things he was reading that he not only felt this feeling of gloom, he wrote a partial response. He wrote a response to the things he was reading. And he didn't write it for publication. He wrote it for himself. He said he wrote it for his own benefit. Now think about this. You're a general authority. You're reading these things that are negative about the church. They're not antagonistic. They're produced by the church. Other people may be reading them or referring to them, but these are church sources. And it's causing him so much distress that not only does he feel gloom, he feels it necessary to put down in writing a response to what he's reading for his own benefit. And he says that part of that response that he wrote down is what he's going to be sharing with the audience today. Finally, He says that this is what God wants him to say. Now, he signals that by saying, you know, I thought about talking about other things that would have more stories be more entertaining, but I kept being directed back to this subject. Now, that may be true. It may not be. All I know is that this is the third talk along these exact same lines. First one at BYU-Idaho, second one at BYU-Hawaii, and now at BYU-Utah. And I kind of think that he probably got this assignment from higher up. You go there. You talk about this subject, okay? Rather than, hey, Elder Corbridge, there's a devotional, BYU. Why don't you just go there and talk about whatever you want to talk about? No, I think he was given this very directly as the subject matter. And that's why he's addressing it. And finally, Bill, finally, three talks have been given in three different venues at all three different BYU campuses on this subject in the last several months. Not once have the church essays been brought up in any of those three talks. The church essays on all these issues is the best-kept secret in the LDS Church. It's buried three clicks deep on the LDS Church website and you would think, Bill, you would think that if the church has gone to all this effort and expense of writing these essays and posting them on their official website, that if someone's going to come before an audience with the goal of addressing issues relating to the church and resolving those issues, at a minimum, they would mention the essays and refer the members to reading those essays to resolve their concerns, if, in fact, they thought the essays would resolve their concerns and not exacerbate them. One gets the idea that the church does not want members to read these essays. They don't even want the members to know that they exist.
1: Yeah, as Elder Oak said, research is not the answer. You just did an episode on that. The reason research is not the answer is because research is the problem. Right, research is the problem. And that's why the Corbridge Maneuver
0: is to resolve the issues without ever talking about them. Let's go ahead and play the tape.
2: The prophet Daniel said that in the last days shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And that kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The kingdom of God is the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It will stand forever. The question is, will you and I stand? Will you stand forever, or will you go away? And if you go, where will you go?
0: Stop the tape. Elder Corbridge refers to Daniel's prophecy now about the kingdom of God that would stand forever, and he unequivocally identifies this kingdom with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, the reason he does this is because at the very outset, what he's doing is a tactic, He is removing the question of whether the church is true from the table. That's not even open to discussion. He is ostensibly going to deal with resolving issues relating to whether the church is true. But at the outset, he's going to remove that even as a topic of discussion. That is a foregone conclusion from his point of view. And that's what he's doing here. That issue's off the table. We're not going to talk about whether the church is true. We're going to talk about whether you will stand forever. We're going to talk about whether you are true to the church. And this is a similar tactic to what Henry J. Eyring did in his talk at BYU-Idaho. But he's using different language. But that is what is going on here. So, it's important to understand, like I said, if you understand that his goal is to resolve concerns about the church without ever talking about them, this is his first move in that chess game.
1: Just a little thought, which is this idea, this scripture had been used so many times in the past, RFM, to uh, speak about the dynamic growth of the church. And and you joined the church, uh, you said in 1978, uh, I joined the church in 1997. So almost 20 years later, the, the growth of the church was presented to me as an evidence of its truthfulness. And constantly I was hearing how we were the fastest growing church out there. And I hope you, the listener, that you sense that. You sense that our dynamic growth was an evidence of the truthfulness of the church. That's how the church framed it. There were studies done that said, Hey, if we just wait another 40, 50 years, that Mormonism was going to be a major world religion. The reality is this, that our growth has essentially plateaued. And in fact, many people are suggesting that we're actually losing members. Uh, and a couple of data points just to kind of show that and to support that. Uh, we started off with 55,000 missionaries when the lowering of the age occurred. Uh, that ended up over the course of the next two to three years going up to about 85,000 missionaries. That's incredible. Uh, Elder Holland had predicted we would get to 100,000, but instead it reduced back to where it is today, which is 65,000. So now we're just 10,000 away from being where we were before the age change. Uh, Another thing is the idea that we're the fastest-growing church. That's not true. The Seventh-day Adventists, for instance, who are the fastest-growing church, actually are growing at a rate of 75% faster than we are. And our growth rate is seen as about 1.3%, and we only make up 0.2% of the human population. The idea that we were going to be this huge church, that has fallen by the wayside. And so in this talk by Elder Corbridge... He uses this scripture that we've been using forever, but he leaves out the part where this uh, kingdom of God breaks into pieces and fills the whole earth. The reason he's left it out, because we're not growing anymore. And if anything, we're shrinking. uh, As we know now that we're losing 73% of our young people, 73% of our younger members are inactive by the age of 21. Uh, And also it should be noted that Elder Cook in a recent general conference made the comment that we should not expect to be anything more than few in number. Um, I think all roads are pointing to a church that is in decline, and now the church has to then change its message from one that used growth as evidence that it was true.
0: Also here, in addition to that, he's saying, Will you stand forever, or will you go away? So implicit in this message also is the threat of eternal separation from God or eternal damnation versus staying with God, standing forever, i.e. being saved. So he is pulling this implicit threat as well. Now he's going to go on to what we would actually expect to be the next point in a talk of this sort that is not going to actually address the issues. And that is to imply that anybody who is studying church history and being troubled by the issues that it presents is being deceived. The next part of his talk is titled, in the written version, Deception is a sign of our time. So if you can play this, this is a substantial part of the talk here, and he actually has two sections devoted to this. And if you can play the first part, and you'll understand now why it is he's going here, because he wants to say, hey, don't be deceived. All the information out there that makes you feel gloomy is deceptive information.
2: When the Lord described the signs of his coming and the end of the world, when he described our day, he mentioned many things, including wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, and famines, pestilences, and earthquakes, and many other signs, including this one. For in those days, this day, there shall also arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if possible, they shall deceive the very elect who are the elect according to the covenant. Now, I'm not sure of all that is implied with that qualification. If possible, they shall deceive the very elect. But I think it means at least everyone will be challenged in our day. Paul said, we see through a glass darkly and one of the most prominent features of the vision of the tree of life is a great mist of darkness that they who commenced in the path did lose their way and that they wandered off and were lost
1: so here you have elder corbridge talking about this idea that there are uh, that there's false christ uh false prophets uh false spokesmen essentially for for the truth And you have this idea that the very elect are going to be deceived. But my question is, who's doing the deceiving? The things that used to be declared as anti-Mormon material when you and I were kids, that material is now the subject matter of the gospel topic essay. So, to the listener, you were raised with prophets who said that those of color were less valiant, that the book of Abraham came from papyri, that masturbation led to homosexuality, that homosexuality was a choice. You were raised with a church that claimed it knew who the Lamanites were, that the Joseph Smith translation was restoring a lost and corrupted Bible. You were taught little about treasure digging, Joseph Smith's marrying and sexual relationships with teenage girls manipulated when they were most vulnerable. You were told nothing of Emma's being deceived by Joseph and kept in the dark by his polygamous behavior. Which prophets were disavowed by which prophets who disavowed them in terms of racial doctrines taught prior to 1978? Which leaders now say being gay is not a choice, disavowing prophets who taught it was? What use is a prophet if they seem to struggle more deeply than its liberal members on the margins in the lost and fallen world at getting doctrine right and always being 40 years late to correct it? My point here to the listener is that Elder Corbidge wants to set up a black and white paradigm where inside the church, the leaders have the truth. And outside the church, the people are deceived. The reality is that LDS leaders have been wrong, demonstrably wrong, on numerous occasions. And prophets in this dispensation have contradicted other prophets in this dispensation, which makes those other prophets being disavowed wrong or those who disavowed them wrong. Like, it's not so simple to put this into a black and white paradigm. You can't simply say like, hey, there's truth in the church and there's air outside it. The reality is the world is often ahead of the church on social issues. Uh, those members who are excommunicated for pointing out problems, those problems are later acknowledged and corrected, uh, as uh, shown recently with people pointing out the sexism in the temple and President Nelson removing much of the patriarchy Uh, in the LDS temple ordinances. Yes, there are false prophets. And yes, there are those who lie in wait to deceive. But if you're willing to be honest, it's the leaders of our LDS faith who have been the worst culprits at deceiving the membership and claiming to be something for which no evidence points to them being the thing they claim to be. If we compare the church and the story the church told us versus what the critics were pointing out, it is demonstrably absolute which side was being more forthright and more honest, and it wasn't the church. Right.
0: And speaking structurally about this talk by Elder Corbridge, this is why it was essential that he, before this, establish that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the kingdom of God that will stand forever. That allows him to say that everything else is deception. There is no deception in the kingdom of God. That's going to stand forever. And therefore, it's an age of deception. Deception is a sign of our time. But any deceiving that's going on is by you folks out there. It's like that old saying about when you point a finger at someone else, don't forget you got three fingers pointing back at yourself, which is what I think you're getting at, Bill. By the way, I've talked about this kingdom of God issue with Denver Snuffer before, and I know he's a regular listener to this podcast, so he would never forgive me. If I did not point out that when Elder Corbridge says the kingdom of God is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that itself is flat out contradicted by church history. The kingdom of God was the political organization that the Council of Fifty was set up to govern and to organize. It was not part of the church. It was not the church at all. It was a separate political institution, and in fact, that's why non-members were put on the Council of 50 by Joseph Smith in order to highlight the fact that this was not related to the Church, and membership in the Kingdom of God had nothing to do with membership in the Church. So, the Kingdom of God and the Church are two completely separate entities, but part of what has happened historically is that as the Council of 50 has faded into the background, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles... In addition to taking over the First Presidency, in addition to eliminating the Patriarch of the Church, in addition to putting themselves over the Quorum of the Seventy, in contradiction to the revelations received by Joseph Smith, which say that they're equal, in addition to all of that, now they have said, we're the Kingdom of God as well. So in this next part of the talk, Elder Corbridge is going to continue to talk about deceivers, and they are all the people outside the Church, and he will identify them not by name, but by description, all the different kinds of deceivers there are outside the church. And then, of course, he will have to do the age-old strategy, which we expect of him, is include a dig at the internet and how it is that the internet and the dissemination of information made possible by the internet is increasing the ability of people to be deceived. Absolutely. Let's roll the tape.
2: There are many who deceive. And the spectrum of deception is broad. At one end, we meet those who attack the Restoration, the Prophet Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon. Next, we see those who believe in the Restoration but claim the Church is deficient and has gone astray. There are others who claim to believe in the Restoration but are disillusioned with doctrine that conflicts with shifting attitudes of our day. There are some without authority who claim to visions and, and visitations to right the ship and guide us to a higher path and prepare the church for the end of the world. Others are deceived by false spirits. And then at the far end of the spectrum, we come to an entire universe of distractions. Never has there been a time. With more information, misinformation, disinformation, more goods, gadgets and games, more options, places to go, things to do and see, to occupy our time and attention away from the most most important. And all of that as much is and all of that and much more is disseminated instantaneously throughout the world through by electronic media. This is a day of deception.
1: Elder Corbridge here mentions those who attack the Restoration. That would be me, you, uh, RFM. That would be other podcasts like Mormon Stories and Gina Colvin's A Thoughtful Faith. Uh, that would be books written by historians and scholars who are pointing out the factual history, which is troublesome to the truth claims of the church. That would be news media outlets who are covering the sex abuse cases of the church and covering Sam Young asking for us not to have interviews behind closed doors. Uh, And it's also the victims of abuse who have raised a voice to the abuse that has occurred and pointed back to the church and said that we can do better in protecting these people. It is those of us who have been manipulated and deceived by an intentional telling of an inaccurate story. It's those who are hurting, those who are different, who don't fit the mold and those who are manipulated by the mechanisms that are found here. He talks about those who believe in the restoration, but claim the church has gone astray. That sounds like Rock Waterman and Denver Snuffer. He says those who claim authority and who see visions. That sounds like Julie Rowe and Denver Snuffer. But never on the table is whether those who raise a hand to the unhealthiness here in our faith, whether they're being honest and factual. Instead, we assume that we are right, and that it's fine to dismiss anyone who claims something is wrong here. He says, never has there been more information, misinformation, disinformation. But again, how accurate has our faith been at telling its story, the full story, the honest story? How much prophecy, seeing into the past and future, how much real revelation and not reactive accommodation to a changing world has happened? I make a bold statement here. Not one doctrine in the LDS church has gone unchanged, and not one story connected to our truth claims is without deep problems. Yet there is misinformation on all sides. But the church and its correlated material have been the greatest offender. Yes, he covers all these different people by
0: description, and he says things that I think sometimes he's not aware could be equally or even more appropriately applied to the LDS church. For instance, I can't help but think that this is an apt description of President Nelson when he says, There are some who, without authority, lay claim to visions, dreams, and visitations to right the ship, i.e., we are not going to call it the Mormon Church anymore, to right the ship, guide us to a higher path, or prepare the Church for the end of the world. That sounds like President Nelson to a T. Now, the only thing that a TBM would dispute is that phrase without authority because they would say he has the authority to do it. But, of course, that's the entire issue. That's the whole question that we're not going to talk about in this address. We're not going to talk about the actual issue. We're just going to assume that we're right and you're wrong because we are the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel. I also think it's a very apt description of the LDS Church when he says, Never has there been more information, misinformation, and disinformation. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the LDS Church has never produced more information, misinformation, and disinformation. But I think that he's unable to see how it applies to the LDS Church and wants to apply it to everybody but the LDS Church.
1: Yeah, it feels, again, as we've been pointing out here constantly... Uh, it seems as though Elder Corbridge and every other leader of the church wants to continue to paint it like the church has been the best place to get the information, and the church has been the most accurate, the most forthright, the most transparent. The information there is true. People outside the church are deceitful. There's misinformation. There's disinformation. Uh, the people outside the church are being inaccurate. They're not telling you the whole story. They're not giving you all the facts and data. That simply is not the case. The church has been the absolute worst offender at telling its own story. Right. And so now that he's talked about the
0: LDS church is the true church, which he doesn't establish by argument. He just establishes it by saying it. It's an argument by assertion. There's no evidence to support it. He's just going to assert it is as true and go on from there. So the church is true. Everybody who disagrees with the church is deceived. And now he's going on to talk about how, if you would disagree with his point of view, that the church is true, you are wrong, wrong, wrong. Oh, and by the way, you're wrong. Play the tape.
2: Truth enables us to see clearly, because it is the knowledge of things as they really are, as they were and as they are to come. Knowledge is crucial to avoid deception and discern between truth and error. The prophet Joseph said, Knowledge is necessary to life and godliness. Knowledge is revelation. Hear, all ye brethren, he said, this grand key. Knowledge is the power of God unto salvation. People say you should be true to your beliefs. And while that is true, you cannot be better than what you know. Most of us act based on our beliefs, especially what we believe to be in our own self-interest. The problem is we're sometimes wrong. Someone may believe in God and that pornography is wrong and yet still click on a site wrongly believing. He'll be happier if he does or that he can't help but not click or it isn't hurting anyone else, so it isn't all that bad. He's just wrong. Someone may believe it is wrong to lie, and yet lie on occasion wrongly believing he'll be better off if the truth is not known. He's just wrong. Another may believe, and even know that Jesus is the Christ, and still deny him, not once, but three times, because of the mistaken belief that he would be better off appeasing the crowd. Peter wasn't evil. I'm not even sure that he was weak. I think he was just wrong. When you act badly, you may think you are bad when in truth you're usually mistaken. You're just wrong. The challenge is not so much closing the gap between our actions and our beliefs. The challenge is closing the gap between our beliefs and the truth. That's the challenge. So how do we close that gap? How do we avoid deception?
1: To so all the things he says are wrong, I agree a hundred percent. Sometimes we are simply wrong. The church was wrong on race. Joseph was wrong in how he practiced polygamy. The church today is wrong in allowing children behind closed doors with untrained lay male leaders. We are and were wrong. The church was wrong about the Book of Abraham translation and still is. The church was wrong on ERA. The church was wrong about who are the Lamanites. It was just wrong. It is wrong on its LGBT doctrines, and it's wrong on its LGBT policies. It is just wrong. It was wrong on evolution. It was wrong on the age of the earth. It was wrong on where the Book of Mormon took place, and if there were battles at New York's Camorra. It was just wrong. It was wrong for perpetuating just one First Vision account for so long, when it secretly knew there were others that varied in details. It was wrong for imposing its priesthood, had more access to supernatural miracles, and it was wrong for saying the spiritual experiences within its system are more valid. It was wrong. It was wrong for excommunicating folks who asked it to be better, and it was wrong for claiming it ended polygamy in 1890. It was wrong. Paul H. Dunn was wrong for telling false stories in the past, and Elder Holland is wrong for telling them in the here and now. They were just wrong. You see, he starts off with this idea... Uh, R.F.M. that truth is knowledge of things as they really are. Now, I agree with that. The trouble is that if we look at it, it's the LDS church that has refused and distanced itself and deflected from telling its history as it really is. And so while truth is a knowledge of things as they really are, it is inappropriate and it is fundamentally inaccurate to say that the church is the best place to go to get Uh, truth or knowledge of things as they really are. Second, he talks about knowledge is revelation to the listener. Who's listening because your loved one shared something with you. Does only your revelation matter? Your loved one wanted nothing more than Mormonism to be true and to be what it claimed. They read, they prayed, they tried everything they knew to figure out how to put this puzzle back together again. Once they saw all the pieces, no one cared to show them. They cried They screamed, they wrestled, they lost sleep. They pleaded for answers to problems they discovered. But while the church says good answers exist, they don't. In fact, if you think good answers exist, you can write me, you can send a message on this, you can ask to have a conversation. I'll sit down with you by telephone and we'll talk for hours about how this doesn't add up. There are clear examples on a multitude of levels of why this thing does not equal what they told us it did. And once you know that data then it becomes obvious that the church was dishonest about its portrayal of its history. That's not your loved one's fault. While they might be giving the articulation that they are having or had a faith crisis, the reality is this church is having a truth crisis. And Elder Corbridge needs to look in the mirror, along with the other top leaders of the church, and acknowledge that they have been the worst ones at being honest to you and me.
0: I agree with you. And in some sense, this talk continues the pattern because he is not going to deal with the issues. He is going to deal with everything and anything except the issues in order to give a method for the members to avoid dealing with the issues. So structurally speaking, once again, looking at What he is saying and why he is saying it, I've already mentioned he's established by fiat that the church is true, that this is a day of deception, it's a sign of the times, everybody's out there, they're getting deceived, everybody that is, except for the faithful members of the church. And now he goes on to this point of his talk where he talks about all these different examples of how people get it wrong. Now, he's charitable enough to say it doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad person or they're evil or anything. They're just wrong, 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 and wrong. And for me, this part of his talk was the most difficult to understand because it sounds like a huge tangent initially from his message because he talks about pornography is wrong and yet still click on a site. Well, this is not a talk about pornography, though. This is code. What he's talking about is really people who are clicking on a site that has information about the church, like Mormon Think or Mormon Discussions or Radio Free Mormon. What he's talking about is people who get sucked in by the deception that exists in the world, all the people deceiving, not the LDS church, all those other people deceiving and saying the church isn't true, getting sucked into that, reading it, listening to the podcast, believing it. They're not necessarily evil. They're just wrong, 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 wrong and wrong. And so he finishes by saying, so how do we close that gap, i.e. the gap between what they believe wrongly, i.e. their deception, and knowledge? How do we avoid that deception? And here's where he leads into really what is the basic part of his talk, where he presents his idea of how to avoid it. This is his contribution to the discussion of how to avoid dealing with the issues. And he separates these into primary questions, which are not the issues, right? The issues he calls secondary questions. And the way he frames it is, if you deal with the primary issues, then you don't even have to worry about the secondary issues. Are you ready to go on, Bill? Let's roll the tape.
2: Begin by answering the primary questions. There are primary questions, and there are secondary questions. Answer the primary questions first. Not all questions are equal, and not all truths are equal. The primary questions are the most important. Everything else is subordinate. There are only a few primary questions. I'll mention four of them. Is there a God who is our Father? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God, the Savior of the world? Was Joseph Smith a prophet? Is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints the kingdom of God on earth? By contrast, the secondary questions are unending. They include questions about church history, polygamy, people of African descent, women in the priesthood, how the Book of Mormon was translated, the Pearl of Great Price, DNA in the Book of Mormon, gay marriage, the different accounts of the first vision, and on and on and on and on. If you answer the primary questions, the secondary questions get answered too, or they pale in significance. And you can deal with things you understand and things you don't understand, things you agree with and things you don't agree with without jumping ship altogether.
0: So here is the crux of Elder Corbidge's talk, where he talks about primary questions and secondary questions. The primary questions are, is there a God who is our Father? Two is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Those are gimmies. Those are not exclusive to the LDS Church. Those would apply to any Christian religion. Those are there just as a setup, really, for number three and four, which was, was Joseph Smith a prophet? That's number three. I could not help but notice that that's the question where Elder Corbridge's voice cracks with emotion. Number four is, is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints the kingdom of God on the earth? Those are really the two critical questions, but he says these are primary questions. And the problem is, is not that he says these are primary questions, although I'm not sure exactly where it's written as to what is primary question and what is a secondary question. A lot of people would think that what he considers secondary questions are primary and vice versa. The problem for me is structurally because what he's saying is, is that you have to answer the primary questions first. Now notice that he says that himself. He says answer the primary questions first and if you answer those questions you don't even have to deal with the secondary questions and the secondary questions he identifies as a litany of issues that you and I are familiar with that have to do with church history. The problem with this is that this is like a trial. Now, I'm a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for almost 30 years now. I've appeared on Dateline. I've appeared on 48 Hours. That's really not critical except to let you know I have been around this block. And I think that Elder Corbridge has too because I understand that he also was a lawyer. The problem is, is that if you put this in the context of a trial, a legal trial in a courtroom, What he is saying is the equivalent of having a trial and telling the jury, Okay, we want you to go and reach your verdict on whether this person is guilty or not. We're not going to give you any evidence. You don't need to consider the evidence. The evidence is not important. That's what all these secondary questions are. You don't need to consider the secondary questions or the evidence. Just find your verdict, guilty or not guilty. And once you come back with your verdict, then we can deal with the evidence. And then we'll see that the evidence supports your verdict. And actually, you don't even need to deal with the evidence at all. Just give us your verdict. So that's the analogy that I see here and the critical
1: fundamental problem with his framework. So he, he mentions here, and as you've already hit on it, the primary questions are most important. Um, these questions are subjective R F M. They're to be answered before you take in the data from multiple viewpoints. The primary questions hinge solely on a spiritual experience if you decide to answer them before absorbing in the actual concrete data. The secondary questions hinge on the data. They hinge on real information, not the invisible. So there is at least in part a concrete substance to the secondary questions, historical context and historical data points. Elder Corbridge admits here, subliminally, that the church does not fare well if we swim in the actual data. Rather, the church's only seemingly tenable position is if you decide on the primary questions first before knowing the full story and the context to the best of your ability. Now, let me tell you, listener, your loved one sees through this. They see that spiritual experiences are the least effective way to know truth. Now, I know you'll disagree, but they know that spiritual experiences are the least effective way to know truth. For example, if we asked a hundred Mormons to pray about something for which a multitude of answers exist and for which there is little or no bias going into it, the range of answers would be widespread even as those members claim to be learning truth from the same source, the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is the least effective way to know an answer to a question. All religious systems have followers that have spiritual experiences within their respective systems, and even among Mormon beliefs, Mormons differ on important facets of the gospel in spite of the members behind each differing answer believing they got the answer from the same source. In other words, if you go into Sunday school and you ask a question for which there is a possibility of a multitude of answers, the room is going to differ. Why? Because each of them, in spite of believing by the Holy Ghost they got their answer or knew it from their study and their prayer, the reality is the Holy Ghost is ineffective at telling a group of people the same answer. There are prophets who were sure by the Holy Ghost that those of color were less valiant, and there are prophets who by the Holy Ghost know that those other prophets were wrong. There are a hundred issues like this. President Hinckley said that Mormon should mean more good, and Elder Bednar said we choose to be offended. President Nelson said God is offended by the word Mormon and using it as a victory for Satan. Even the very prophets of the church contradict each other. Can you sense the uselessness of the Spirit in deciding truth, even among men who claim to be prophets, seers, and revelators? Your loved one gets it. They get that using one's brain, trying to be objective as possible, trying to gather in as much information and knowledge as possible is the process that is best at deciding truth. And when your loved one carries out that process, the church has practically no leg to stand on.
0: Yes, and a few other comments that I wanted to make related to minor things that he says here has to do with his quote, first off, not all questions are equal and not all truths are equal. Yes, he actually said that, shades of Boyd K. Packer. Why is it that when leaders speak, whether it's Elder Corbridge or whether it was John Gee, the Egyptologist, or whether it is Boyd K. Packer himself, they are tempted to want to categorize truth and say that some truths are not useful. That was Boyd K. Packer's expression. Now Elder Corbridge is saying not all truths are equal. It's the same idea. The truths that are not equal are, of course, the ones that end up being critical of the church and undermining faith in its truth claims. So those are the truths that are not equal. Second, he says, by contrast to the primary questions, the secondary questions are unending, an And then he gives a litany of them. And he does this for a number of reasons. First off, to signal that he is aware of the issues. So later on, when he bears his testimony, it's going to give the impression that he knows all of these issues. He's researched them. He will even say there are good answers to them. God forbid he should ever actually tell us what those good answers are. That actually might help resolve some concerns that people have who are leaving the church is to get a good answer to these issues. He says he knows them. He's not going to share them but he does signal that he's aware of them. I do think it's interesting that he says the Pearl of Great Price. That's one of the issues, the secondary issues. How the Book of Mormon was translated the Pearl of Great Price, DNA in the Book of Mormon. Why doesn't he just say the Book of Abraham, Bill? That's interesting to me. Instead, he says the Pearl of Great Price. Well, the Pearl of Great Price is not a secondary issue. There's no problem with the Pearl of Great Price. The problem is with The translation of the papyri, which came to be the book of Abraham, which is one of the books in the Pearl of Great Price. But for some reason, he just can't bring himself to say the book of Abraham. That's an interesting thing. But he does this for this purpose. But the thing that he also does, which I think he's not aware of, is when he says the secondary questions are unending. I think that's hyperbole. Obviously, they're not unending, Bill. You and I are both familiar with them and what they are and the answers pro and con to them. But why is it, Bill, that in the Lord's true and living church upon the face of the whole earth, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, why is it that historical and problematic issues should be unending?
1: Yeah, the only answer I can come up with is that where there's smoke, there's fire.
0: Yes, and finally, he has to get in the reference to jumping ship, right? He has to go back to Elder Ballard, stay in the boat. He has to go to Elder Rinland, stay in the dinghy. And he says at the end uh, that if you answer the primary questions without evidence, if you reach your verdict without hearing any evidence, the secondary questions get answered too, or they pale in significance. And you can deal with things you understand and things you don't and things you agree with and things you don't without jumping ship altogether. Now, Elder Corbridge insists on arguing only in theory. He never actually talks about the facts. He never really makes the connection between his argument in the road. Uh, notice that he's giving a closing argument here. He's giving a summation in favor of his position, but never once does he actually talk about any of the facts. That is remarkable. And the reason he doesn't is because here's what happens if you apply his system, his maneuver, the core maneuver to the actual facts. And these are just a couple of examples. Let's look at his third primary question, was Joseph Smith a prophet? The answer is, of course, yes. We all know that that's supposed to be the right answer. Yes, he was a prophet. The verdict is in. But then, the facts come about. But what about his marrying other men's wives? Well, That has to be okay. Why? Because he was a prophet. What about Joseph Smith marrying teenage girls, some as young as 14? The answer is, that has to be okay. The question, why, and the answer has to be, because he was a prophet. Finally, but what about his plagiarizing Bible commentaries in his Joseph Smith translation? Well, that has to be okay. Why? Because he was a prophet. You can repeat it after me. See how easy the game is? If you look at the fourth primary question about the LDS Church being the kingdom of God, the same kind of conversation will ensue. What about its position on blacks and the priesthood? You mentioned that, Bill. Well, that has to be okay. Why? Because it is the true church of God. But what about its position on LGBTQ people? That has to be okay. Why? Because it is the true church of God. But what about hiding its history from its own members? Well, that has to be okay. Why? I think you can answer this one, Bill. Because it is the true church of God. Each of these games is easy to play. All you have to do is be able to draw a circle. All you have to do is agree to the correct answers to the primary questions, and everything else will fall into place or will not matter so much. That is the Corbridge maneuver.
1: Yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, I'm as you're saying that, I'm thinking of a hundred other issues. I look at Joseph Smith's treasure digging and him scamming people out of money. Uh, to have other people dig holes while he had a stone in a hat telling people where fictional treasure was buried and how similar that is to Moroni and gold plates and treasure in hills. And yet you say like, how do we explain that? It doesn't matter. Joseph Smith was a prophet. And so we have to come up with loopholes and uh, explanations that require extra allowances. In other words, irrational explanations because we've started with the four primary questions. Your loved one has stopped working backwards. They haven't stopped by just forming a conclusion and then working all the data to fit that. Instead, they've started to look at the data objectively. And what it points at is that the four primary questions, at least the last two, don't add up the way we thought they did. Now, before we go to the next section of audio, I just want to say RFM, um, he's going to go through how we can learn... Um, and, and I'm going to say this maybe on the record, off the record, I can delete this. But my hope is that we can actually play the different ways of learning along with the first three methods first before we speak, because I think that's all kind of connected, and then play the divine method. But what Elder Corbidge is going to do is he's going to go through different ways of learning, he's going to name these methods, and then he's going to go through and explain each of them. Um, and what he does is he lines up these three methods that we in the world use to learn, the scientific method, the analytical method, and the academic method. And I think he does a fairly good job of laying out uh, how those three work. But I want you to notice that he does a little trick, and we'll talk about it here after we play this audio, but he does a little trick to turn the divine method into something very different and which dismisses the first three. Right. He's going to talk about the scientific
0: method, the analytical method, and the academic method. And he's going to say that these are all ways that we learn truth. And that is absolutely correct. What he's not going to say here, but which is obvious to me is that it is these three methods that are leading people away from the church when they actually deal with the evidence. The scientific method leads people away from the church. The analytical method leads people away from the church. And the academic method leads people away from the church. And finally, he will go on to the divine method, which is basically to ignore the other three methods and focus simply on feeling good about the church when you pray about it or feeling good about the book of Abraham when you read it. So he will say that actually the divine method, the fourth method, incorporates and trumps all the other three methods. But when you actually listen to what he says, I think you will agree with me that really what he means is the divine method contradicts these three methods, but is nevertheless superior.
2: With
1: that, roll the tape.
2: How can we know the answers? There are different methods of learning, including the scientific, academic, uh, uh, analytical, and divine methods. The divine method incorporates elements of the other other three, but ultimately trumps everything else by tapping into the powers of heaven. All four methods are necessary to know the truth. They all begin the same way, with a question. Questions are important especially the primary questions. The scientific method, we form a hypothesis framed in response to a question. Experimentation is then conducted to test the hypothesis. The ro- results are then analyzed, conclusions are drawn that either confirm, disprove, or modify the hypothesis in which, the, in which event the process continues. ALMA invites us, to experiment upon his words. The Lord said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. In regard to tithing, he said, Prove me now herewith, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Truth can be discovered by doing, which is faith. Experience plays a vital role in coming to know the truth. In the analytical method, that method is also important. It involves gathering, organizing, and weighing the evidence relevant to a question. Based on the weight of the evidence, conclusions are drawn as to what the truth may be. The Lord instructed Oliver Cowdery, saying, Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your own mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. Evidence and reason also play a role in preparing us to know the truth. The academic method involves, of course, study of the written word. Study as well is essential. Mormon said the word of God has a more powerful effect upon the minds of the people, how we think, than the sword, which might be the very fear or threat of death, or for that matter, anything else, this is more powerful than anything else. It's more powerful than fear, addiction, pornography, or anything else. It stands to reason, therefore, that the Lord would say, treasure up in your minds continually the words of life. And whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived.
1: There's a bait and switch that's happening here. And and I think I think it's easy to see once you once it's pointed out, which is he's giving you these first three methods. So in the first place, he talks about the scientific method. The scientific method involves us forming a hypothesis and testing it out, seeing if that hypothesis old holds up and if we need to change our assumptions or not. Um I think that has value. But he does a little shift here by pointing us back to the Book of Mormon. And talking about uh, Alma's use of the scientific method. Um, I think that's important because what he wants to do is say, look, the scientific method is great, but it's the spiritual use of the scientific method that is most important. Then he gets to the analytical method. This idea of evidence and reason. The idea of using our minds to analyze things and to think about them. Uh, it involves gathering, organizing, weighing evidence. Um, but again, he also points out this story about Oliver Cowdery. Uh, he then points it back to the scriptures and says that sometimes we think we can do something by analyzing it, and the reality is we never asked God. So he's allowing God to essentially trump the analytical method. Uh, then he gets to the academic method. And he's essentially saying that academics involves research, like we read books, we take in information, we listen to experts, and we gather all that information and we begin to uh, form an opinion. But then he uh, dismisses this one by saying that the word of God, in other words, the scriptures, trump all the other information you can get. So in all three of these, he's saying, yeah, they're great but only if they're used to arrive at the answer that we've given you. Now, he's going to get into in a moment into the divine method, but I want to make a note. The first three work in part at times and sometimes completely in the concrete. The last mode, this divine mode, places weight on the subjective. Notice that he says in that first paragraph that we just played, he says that uh, the divine method of learning incorporates elements of the other three but ultimately trumps everything else. Now, here's why. Every road has to lead to the church being true. So the first three methods used on their own demonstrably point at the church not being what it claims to be. So we can't let those three sit there by themselves. And we can't give anyone an option where the church cannot be true. Here's what I mean. If you were to walk up to Elder Holland, for instance, and you were to say, look, let's assume the church may be true. It may not be true. Give me a formula by which I may come to the conclusion that the church is not true. It doesn't exist. There is no formula for the church not being true. There's only formulas that reinforce that the church is true. A, if you get an answer from the Spirit that the church is true, the church is true. If you don't get an answer from the Spirit, remember, it is given to some to know by spiritual means that Jesus is the Christ and it is given to others to rely on their words. There's that uh, scripture that says something very similar to that. Whenever somebody doesn't get an answer, we pull that scripture out. and We say, oh, you didn't get an answer? Well, then that's okay, too. The church is still true. Sometimes people pray about the Book of Mormon and nothing happens, and they go, you know what? I always knew it was true anyway. I don't need a spiritual experience. See? It leads to the church being true. When we encounter these problems, it's have faith. God will work it out on the other side. Why? Because the church is true. All roads lead to the church being true, and the divine method is necessary Because any time you get an answer or the data points to the church not being true, then the divine method is brought in to say, look, the church is true, so now this trumps all the other three methods. This trumps the other three methods, only though, only though when your answer is that the church is true. In other words, what happens to those who pray about the church and their spiritual answer is that the church is not true? Guess what? divine method no longer matters. Instead, we use the excuse that Satan has come in and he's deceived people. You see, every answer is the church is true. There's no way to figure it out. The reality is, if you set the divine method as only pointing to the church being true aside, or if you just use those first three methods, the analytical, the scientific, and the academic method, almost everyone arrives at the church not being true. You know, that's really interesting that you put it that way, Bill, because later on
0: in his talk, he is going to go on at some length to explain away the bad feelings that he got when he was reading the literature that challenged the church's claims that they were gloomy, that they were bad. And ultimately he will say, I think three times that these are the voices from the dark choir. This is Satan influencing him to give him these bad feelings, the feelings that indicate the church is not true. So that's exactly what you just said. When you get those kinds of feelings about the church, when you are inclined to question the church, that is Satan.
1: Yeah. And I want to add another thought, which is if we, if we let the church's mode of discovering truth actually be applied, here's what happens. Sadly, such has led the church, its leaders, and its members in perpetuating racism, perpetuating homophobia, perpetuating child sex abuse, perpetuating patriarchy and gender equality, marginalizing those who have left the church knowing it isn't true, and those still in with serious doubts. And it's done so for decades and decades longer only to eventually change and shift and admit they were wrong. In other words, the divine method, when you allow the divine method to trump the other three, actually leads to you being dysfunctional way, way longer than you needed to be and being dysfunctional in the first place. Right. And the language about trumping the other
0: three means that any time the conclusions you reach through the scientific method, the analytical method, or the academic method— conflict with the truth claims of the church. The divine method trumps it because that's the only time it's needed to trump it. And the divine method, which we'll get on to saying, is simply the Holy Ghost whispering in the still small voice to you that it's true. That's the divine method. By the way, one other comment I wanted to make, because I think it's important. Once again, getting back to the structure of the talk, here is a place where I think that Elder Corbridge makes a critical mistake in his presentation And that is, in each of these first three methods, citing to scripture to support them. He talks about the scientific method. He cites scripture to show that this is a scriptural method. In other words, God approves of this method. In other words, this is a divine method. You can't cite scripture in support of a method and say it's not divine. So the scientific method is divine. The analytical method... He also cites scripture in support of it. That's a divine method too. The academic method, he cites scripture. That's a divine method. What he's saying is, actually, and this is the problem structurally speaking here, that all four methods are divine because they're all backed up by scripture, but he is going to give priority to the last one. He's going to call that one the divine method, even though all of them are divine, and he will give priority to the answers that come through the his last method, which is simply the whisperings of God feeling good about the truth claims of the church, in spite of what you may learn from the others through your mind, through the scientific process, through the academic process, through the analytical process. None of that matters if the Holy Ghost tells you the church is true.
1: And so now we're about ready to get into where he lays out the divine method,
0: Right, and essentially this is just an extended part of his talk where he tries to build up how significant, how important, how overwhelming this still small voice is in trumping everything. Yeah, and
1: else. this is a little bit longer section. We'll go through this, um, but I think there's a couple of good points to be made here at the conclusion. So with that, RFM, you ready? Roll the tape.
2: The divine method incorporates the elements of the other methodologies but ultimately trumps everything else because it taps into the powers of heaven. Ultimately, the things of God are made known by the Spirit of God, which is usually a still, small voice. The Lord said, God shall give unto you knowledge by his Holy Spirit, yea, by the unspeakable gift of the Holy Ghost. The Apostle Paul taught that men only know the things of men, and that the things of God are known by no man except by the Spirit of God. He said, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. We see that every day. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Of all the problems you encounter in this life, There is one that towers above them all and is the least understood. The worst of all human conditions in this life is not poverty, sickness, loneliness, abuse, or war. As awful as those conditions are, the worst of all human conditions is the most common, and it is to die. It is to die spiritually. It is to be separated from the presence and power of God. That's the worst. Conversely, the best of all human conditions in this life is not wealth, fame, prestige, good health, the honors of men, security, or dare I say it, even good grades. As wonderful as some of, the, some of those things are, The best of all human conditions is to be endowed with heavenly power. It is to be born again, to have the gift and companionship of the Holy Ghost, which is the source of knowledge, revelation, strength, clarity, love, joy, peace, hope, faith, and almost every other good thing. Jesus said the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, shall teach you all things. It is the power by which we may know the truth of all things. It will show us all things we should do. It is the fountain of living water that springs up unto eternal life. Although the voice of the Spirit is usually a still small voice, it is nevertheless ever sure penetrating, pervasive, edifying and sustaining, so much so that the Lord said, And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Pay whatever price you must pay. Bear whatever burden you must bear. Make whatever sacrifice you must make in order to get and keep in your life the spirit and power of the Holy Ghost. Everything depends on that.
1: All right, I've only got two quick points to make here. I know, RFM, this is a section that I think has some real importance to it. Um, the two things I want to point out, I think, are tangential in a way but just to make acknowledgement of him. He talks about the problem above all is death, specifically spiritual death. I simply want to say that he draws our attention away from all the visible problems in the world and points us to an invisible problem, spiritual death. Not everybody believes in spiritual death. People have various religious beliefs, those who are Christian uh, have this idea that if we sin beyond repair, if we don't repent uh, about the things we do, then we don't get to live with God again. But that's an invisible problem. Whether it's true or not, nobody knows for sure until we get there. To draw our attention away from real problems, uh, visible problems, things that we could address in the world without them ha- being trumped by spiritual death as the main problem, I think what he's doing is he's drawing our attention away from the problems we see in the church that rub us the wrong way and saying like those problems aren't a big deal. A gay kid killing himself because of our LGBT policies is less of a problem than spiritual death. And so what he's saying is that the church is solving the biggest problem and hence its solution trumps the other things that we see that are unhealthy. Second, He says the best of all human conditions is being in the gospel with the Holy Ghost. Again, he gives us an invisible best of all human conditions. Uh, There are other human conditions he lays out, but whether it's happiness, joy, a, a good job, a healthy family, like what those things look like outside the church, they don't matter. The more important thing is the invisible extra happiness, the invisible extra portion of the Holy Ghost that uh, members of the church have. I simply want to remind the listener that what he is pointing to are subjective things as the most important and the concrete things that we actually see in front of our face as the least important, and he's doing it for a reason. It's to draw our attention away from being uncomfortable with the things that we see. Right.
0: And as far as these four methods go, he says the divine method, this fourth method, is the one that trumps all the others. It is the most reliable method from his point of view at arriving at the truth. Well, I will say that the first three methods, although they are certainly not perfect, are reliable in arriving at the truth. They may not be perfect, but they do have some degree of reliability, which is why they exist in the first place. But his divine method, his fourth method, is not reliable in arriving at the truth. He wants to say it is, but historically speaking, the divine method, this revelation method from God, is the method that has been proven to be the least reliable in arriving at the truth. Do you have any examples of that you'd like to share, Bill?
1: Uh, we could pick some of the things we've already talked about. So, LDS prophets, prior to 1978, using the divine method, believed that those of color were less valiant in the premortal life. They thought they had the curse of Cain. They taught that interracial marriage was sin. Prophet after prophet, from Brigham Young through George Albert Smith all the way up to middle of Spencer W. Kimball's presidency, using the divine method were wrong. Today, the church, because of the pressure in the world, has acknowledged like, oh, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Using the other three methods, we arrived at the fact that that doesn't hold up. Past prophets were wrong using the divine method on whether those of color had a curse and were less valiant. Another example, Spencer W. Kimball in the book, The Miracle of Forgiveness, using the divine method, was sure that homosexuality was caused by masturbation and other reasoning that he lays out. Using the first three methods, we know that Spencer W. Kimball's ideas were moronic. They were not intelligent. They were not even reasonable. That the science and the data, as we use the other three methods of the scientific, the academic, and the analytical showed demonstrably that those ideas were wrong. It took years and years, even decades, after the science community had figured this out for our church to let go of the divine method and acknowledge the science. Uh, We can go through uh, issues of cremation, birth control, women working outside the home, We can use the idea of uh, how sexist things in the temple were. At every turn, leaders of the church using the divine method have held on to bad ideas way longer than the rest of the world. When in reality, if they set the divine method aside and use the first three modes and allow them to trump, by the way, the reverse of Elder corbridge allow them to trump the divine method, Then suddenly we arrive at the truth decades quicker.
0: Right. And so I will just say this final comment that the reason, the reason that Elder Corbridge says the divine method trumps the other three is because the divine method is the only one that can be manipulated in order to arrive at the preordained conclusion. This is how it fits structurally in his talk. He's talked about the preordained conclusions that you are supposed to come to without examining the evidence. Those are his four primary questions. And even though there are other methodologies, three other methods that he talks about, they cannot be manipulated to arrive at the truth that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true and that Joseph Smith was a prophet. In fact, they tend to lead in the other direction. Therefore, this fourth method, the divine method, must trump the others because it's the only one that can be manipulated to arrive at the correct conclusion that you were told to reach before the trial even started. And frankly, Bill, we all know what happens if you don't get the correct divine communication. If the divine method doesn't work for you, you're either doing something wrong or you're getting the answer from the wrong source. All roads, as you say, lead to Rome, or perhaps more aptly, all roads lead to Salt Lake City.
1: And I cannot emphasize enough, if the listener takes nothing else away from this talk, it is these two points, which is one if you're willing to set aside your predisposed conclusion that the church is true and to dive into the first three methods of learning. And again, those three methods are historically shown to point you to being better at and better at figuring out the truth. In every scientific venue, social study, trying to figure out what are the causes, what are the benefits of being a human being. These three modes lead us towards the truth. As you point out, RFM, they're not perfect. Nothing is. But the divine method is demonstrably, historically, the least effective way to arrive at truth to the point where using the divine method, prophets contradict each other over and over and over again on hundreds of issues throughout 200 years of church history. So that's point number one, that the divine method is the least effective, and that the other three lead us towards discovering that the church is not what it's claimed to be. The second, and it's crucial that the listener walks away with this, the method he wants to use, which is the least effective method, the reason it's so important to the church is because it's the only method, as you point out, That can be manipulated in getting the listener, the person, the member, the participant in the church to arrive at the conclusion that the church is true. So the moment you as a listener decide, you know what? Those guys are right. The divine method is the least accurate way to do this thing. And this next step, recognizing that these guys want you to use the divine method in trumping all the other methods because it's the least effective way to arrive at the truth.
0: Right. And I think this is really the crux of the talk. Now, we are just a little over halfway through Elder Corbridge's talk. We're going to call it quits here for part one. We will continue with the rest of his talk in part two. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.